Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is April 30th, 2013, and my guest is William Bernstein. His latest book and our topic for today's podcast is Masters of the Word, How Media Shaped History from the Alphabet to the Internet. Bill, welcome back to Econ Talk. Pleasure to be here, Russ. Your book is about how our ability to communicate with each other has changed over time and how those changes affect history. Uh, the big four that you look at are language, writing, printing, and now we're in the middle of the digital revolution. I want to start with language and writing. What were the most important developments and how did they affect history? Well, if we're going to start from the very beginning, we start you know, roughly 100,000 years ago, which is the date – that most anthropologists uh, assign to uh, our ability, uh, the you know, start of our ability to uh, formulate syntactically dense uh, language. You know, when Hume and, and Smith were noodling around in the last part of the uh, 18th century about what made human beings unique, uh, what they came up with was that uh, if you put us down in a state of nature, we very quickly became a predator's lunch because we don't have uh, big scary claws or teeth, we don't run very fast, we don't have protective coloration, and we can't fly. What we can do is we can communicate and so cooperate. And of course, this explanation is the paragraph before the most famous one in the book about you know, the baker and the butcher, and it's not through their beneficence and so forth. Uh, so it basically, our ability to communicate and cooperate defines uh, our um, uh, species. And when that's all that you can do, when the only method of communication you have is face-to-face with communication, you wind up with a very curious political and social structure, uh, which tends to be very democratic uh, or relatively democratic and fairly small. And we still see that today in some aboriginal tribes and well into the modern period with pirate organizations as as well. Uh, and, you know, that changes very radically with the introduction of writing, which I uh, go into in some detail in the book. And the big breakthrough in writing, uh, there's there's a couple of breakthroughs. There's There's some technological change about what we wrote on, and I'd like you to walk us through some of that because it's fascinating. Uh, for people who've always wanted to know what vellum is, this is your big chance, or papyrus. <laughs> uh, but but part of it, what we learned was was how to what, what to write on. But equally important, obviously, is what we wrote, and the alphabet was a really big thing. Yeah, well, you know, I think it was Bronkowski who said that without writing, there's no civilization, and without civilization, uh, there's there's no writing. But that's actually not strictly true because. Writing, as we know it, was invented uh, at a very specific place in a very specific time. The place was Uruk, which was a city uh, in uh, southern Mesopotamia, and the time was 3150 uh, B.C. And we, we we know this fairly well from archaeological records. Now, the curious thing, the curious thing about Uruk was that it was already at that point a very large city. Uh, it had about two square miles, uh, and uh, it enclosed uh, about 
several hundred thousand people, which made it the largest city of its time uh, for the next 3,000 uh, years. And so the question is, how did it get to be that big if it didn't have writing? And the answer was it didn't have writing, but it had record keeping, which is how you organize societies. And the records that they used initially were these little clay uh, tokens that were about a sonometer or two in size, tetra size tetrahedrons, uh, and, and spheres and cones. And they evolved, uh, through several stages, uh, into writing. I, I might add that the person who figured this out, a woman by the name of Nice Schmant Besserat, who, uh, is an archaeologist, uh, her, her name really belongs up there with Watson and Crick and Darwin, but because of the vicissitudes of history, no one really uh, knows her her name. So that's how writing evolves. And the, the trick about this system, uh, the system that evolved from from these these uh, tokens, the cuneiform system, was unbelievably complex. Uh, it consisted of about a thousand characters, and its complexity derived from the fact that it was primarily a syllabography. Uh, it uh, composed of, of syllables. Uh, and the problem with that is that there are several thousand possible syllables, but they only used 500 of them to keep things relatively simple. And so you needed uh, a vast amount of training to figure out all the, to tease out all the ambiguity. So, you know, it's a system that took about uh, 10 years uh, to learn to use, which meant that only a very small upper crust of people uh, could could run them, the scribes. Now, we tend to think of a scribe as, you know, this guy sitting on a street corner uh, writing letters for people. But in fact, uh, if you were a scribe uh, in remote antiquity, you were the equivalent of a rocket scientist and a high-tech entrepreneur and an investment banker and a GS-15 all rolled up into one because you determined the structure of society. You determined who worked, how much uh, food uh, that person got, uh, where you, uh, uh, you know, what kind of work you did. You had the power of life and death as to say nothing of this magic power of extracting uh, words from clay tablets. Uh, and so that, you know, basically uh, defines a fairly despotic society where only a very small upper crust can communicate with each other. So take us through some of the changes that take place in the media. So uh, the, the, how language was was preserved. So it started off on these on clay tablets in the Middle East Talk about the uh, evolution of, of the, the media that, pe that people used for writing. Well, um, for starters, even before there was writing, of course, there was storytelling. And the storyteller, you know, in the preliterate age, was a person also of, of great uh, consequence. The media that was used originally in Mesopotamia was, of course, clay tablets. Uh, and this was a bonanza uh, for people who were studying uh, writing the paleographers in the philologists, uh, because clay lasts a long time, and better yet, uh, when a city is destroyed uh, and burned, it basically bakes the clay and, and preserves it uh, for for eons. Now, the problem that, that people had in Egypt was that they used, from a very early point on, uh, primarily papyrus uh, and ink, which was relatively easy to write on. It was basically ink and paper. The problem is it doesn't last very long. Uh, the oldest, you know, we do have some pieces of papyrus that are three or 4,000 years old, but those are the exceptions. Explain uh, what papyrus is. Papyrus is basically, uh, 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 it's, it's paper. It's a very early form of paper. It's the, the product of a plant. 
that grows in the Egyptian uh, marshes. Uh, and for, you know, uh, millennia, really the only place you could get papyrus from was, was Egypt. And you would beat it out, uh, you would extract it and beat it out into uh, uh, what basically amounted to, to paper. It was very similar to paper. And then, and, of course got, they had, and then we got parchment and vellum and then yeah. modern paper. What are, the, what are the differences between those? Well, the, the really interesting thing about you know papyrus is that it doesn't last uh, very, very long, and that Egypt was the sole, almost the sole source of it. Uh, and you know, by the time you get to the Hellenistic Greek uh, period, the great intellectual, the great arms race of the time was intellectual. It was who was going to be the preserver of you know Plato and Aristotle and all the rest of them, and the great plays and the rest of the classics. Uh, and so, what the, the people who ran the um, uh, the library at Alexandria decided was they were going to forbid exports of papyrus. Uh, now, the great competing uh, library at the time was the one in Pergamon in western uh, Turkey. And so the king of Pergamon, a man by the name of Eumenes, uh, settled on the use of parchment, which is basically um, uh, 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 calfskin. Uh, and uh, it's extremely expensive, but the advantage of it is that it lasts much longer. Uh, and so the joke was on the people who ran the library in Alexandria because their material uh, crumbled into nothing, whereas the parchment lasted a lot longer and got preserved through a very long and complicated daisy chain of events that led through the, autumn, the early Ottoman Empire uh, and then back into Europe during the Renaissance. And I'm sorry, since I promised the listeners, you have to t say what vellum is. Oh, I'm sorry. Vellum is very similar <laughs> to, to parchment, except it comes from stillborn calves uh, or very young calves. So it's yet more expensive. And if you've never, you know, you tend to think of parchment and vellum as being these 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 thick skins. Vellum, in fact, is about as almost as thin as paper, uh, and it just it feels beautiful to the touch if you've never had the opportunity to 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 handle it. And if you don't know uh, where and, it's from. Yeah, and if you don't exactly know where it's from, yeah. So it's, uh, you know, and, and the thing the thing about, uh, you know, for example, uh, a, a Bible uh, that was made from vellum or parchment uh, might come, might use basically an entire flock of sheep. Wow. So that would be expensive. Um, yes, very expensive. Now, the alphabet was quite a breakthrough because it simplified uh, written language dramatically and it allowed uh, writing to be dramatically more accessible. And and you argue that literacy and the expansion of access to writing was central to Athenian democracy. So explain why that is. Well, all right. So we, we start with this system in, in Egypt uh, and in Mesopotamia, which although they looked very different, you know, hieroglyphics and cuneiform internally, uh, they were nearly identical. They consisted of about a thousand characters, and uh, some of them were logograms, but most of them were syllabograms. They stood for syllables. Very, very hard to master. It took about ten years. Okay, who who had ten years in those days? Particularly at a point where you know life expectancy might not have been much more than twenty-five or thirty-five years. And the thing was that the Egyptian system did contain about thirty consonants single consonants that were actually letters, uh, but they were never used alone in the Egyptian system. And at some point, probably at a place 
uh, in the Western Sinai called Sarabit el Kadam. Uh, there was this turquoise mine where there were these Semites. Uh, they could have been Syrians. They could have been Canaanites. They might have been slaves. They might have been contract workers. Nobody really knows. But the Egyptians were their bosses. And somehow either they uh, figured out on their own or their Egyptian bosses showed them how to construct an alphabet consisting just of these 30 letters, these consonants, these phonemes. So it was a consonant-only system, and of course it evolved into Phoenician, which we tend to think of as the first alphabet. It wasn't, uh, and and uh, uh, it uh, you know uh, also evolved into Aramaic and into ancient Hebrew, and eventually into uh, Arabic. And this system was much easier to learn. It still wasn't easy. It took about four years. Uh, and one of the ways we know this is if you've been to Hebrew school, you know that you really aren't able to read the vowelless script, uh, which they have, you know, in everyday use in Israel, uh, until about the fourth grade. You need vowel points, uh, before then. So you get a script that people can very slowly, uh, start to diffuse literacy with. Ordinary people can learn how to use this. And we actually see some hints of this, uh, in, you know, in the Old Testament of the Bible, where some of the prophets used their literacy to uh, uh, challenge the power of the king, particularly in Jeremiah. Now, the key players here, though, are the Phoenicians. Uh, the Phoenicians are a great trading people. They spread trade goods and their culture throughout the entire Mediterranean. Uh, and around 750, they wind up in Greece. Now, the Greeks at this point are illiterate. Uh, the great epics uh, were, came purely from the oral tradition. Homer didn't write the Iliad and the Odyssey. He was almost certainly just the first guy, if he was one person, uh, it was probably might have been many people, uh, who wrote it down when they acquired writing. Uh, and they get their writing basically from uh, the uh, the Phoenicians, but they do it with a wrinkle. They They look at the Phoenician alphabet and they say, golly, you guys are Semites, you have all these funny guttural sounds that come from deep in your throats. We don't need those. Uh, we're going to convert these letters we don't need into vowels. Uh, and all of a sudden, you have a system that can be learned by a clever five-year-old. I mean, I have no doubt that there were, you know, Athenian yuppies who were bragging to their next-door neighbors about how, you know, young Alexandros could read Euripides by age four. Uh, and so you have a system that encourages mass literacy, and it's estimated that, you know, by the late 5th century, early 4th century BC, um, uh, up to a third, maybe a half of uh, Athenian citizens could read and write. Well, where does democracy develop? All right. It doesn't develop in Babylonia. It doesn't develop in Egypt. It develops uh, in, in Greece uh, because you have a writing system and advanced communications technology, which is uh, uh, easily uh, accessible to ordinary people. But of course, you and I know well that correlation is not causation. So we don't. There is the striking fact that Athenians were were literate. There is the striking fact that they were democratic. You also connect some of those dots, though. You talk about why literacy was important for their democracy. Yeah, let me and let me let me let me point out. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm proposing a more general theory here, which is I, I admit is purely speculative. Uh, that that it's access to communications technology that is an important part in history and in politics and in democratic development. But obviously, you, you know, 
uh, you know, your listeners are very sophisticated and they're uh, very attuned to, you know, rejecting monocausal uh, explanations of history. Obviously, there are many other factors involved. If you're going to overthrow a despot, one of the things that's really important, as we know from modern history, uh, is the willingness of troops to slaughter their own citizens. That's far more important than social media in the modern world, for example. And we also know from a fair depth of research uh, in sociology and political science that there are a lot of factors that uh, that precede democracy and are probably causative of it. Uh, that, uh, although we don't know for sure, that have nothing to do with communications technology either. But it's a factor, and I think it's an important one that uh, isn't talked so about. So why enough. was it important in Athens? <clears throat> well, it was important in Athens simply because you had a society uh, in which not only uh, was there no monopoly on communications and on organizing the society, uh, because that's how you organized uh, any city-state. I mean, you couldn't have large empires until you had uh, uh, communications technologies writing that was adequate to the task. I mean, the first great empire was Sargon's empire uh, around 2300 uh, BC, and it probably took until that time for the uh, Sumerian and Akkadian scripts to uh, evolve to the point where they could transmit the kind of command and control you needed to run an empire and also to write down laws. The, one of the points I make in the book is that if you are illiterate, uh, someone who is literate has a magical power, appears to you to have a magical power. And, of course, ruling elite, elites uh, exploited that to the hilt. Well, in a world where everyone uh, can read and write or literacy is universal, that magic disappears. That despot, That despotic tendency, I think, disappears. But there's also practical issues that you talk about. You've got to be able to read the legislation. You've got to be able to to share it with people. And right, they didn't. It wasn't like the uh, you know the Gettysburg Address where one man is speaking to a few thousand people. They they pass stuff around, right? Yeah, they, they they certainly they certainly did. Now, one of the things about Athenian democracy that, that tells you that you know there was a literate empowered population that was running it was simply the way they chose their officers all but a very small subset of key officers were chosen uh basically by by lot uh and you know you might have uh someone who was randomly chosen to be the head of state basically for the day uh and and you know they also ran you know several you know ordinary citizens who were chosen at random uh, were, were chosen to uh, perform essential city duties, to put out contracts, collect taxes, uh, pass sentence, you know, execute sentences on people, jail people. Uh, they didn't, they weren't usually the ones who did it. They were directing slaves who did it. Uh, but it, you know, it was a participatory in a, in a, in a, in a degree that we don't know today, that we, we don't experience today. And it really couldn't have been done without widespread literacy. Has a certain appeal, doesn't it? Ruler for it the does. day. You, it's true. You give up on the uh, economies of scale and learning by doing, but there's a certain uh, focus for that one day for that person. Yeah, it certainly is. Um, now, for those who aren't interested in, in Greek democracy or Sargon, we are going to move to the modern era very shortly. But i i want to I want to mention one breakthrough you remark on in the book. It that's it, it seems rather obvious, but it was an incredibly important breakthrough, which is the space between the words. Talk about that for a minute. Sure. Um, you know, ancient Greek, uh, ancient Latin didn't have word separation. 
and uh, it, it made it made reading mass literacy difficult. Obviously, the the Greeks did it to a certain extent, but the the you know, and it may seem obvious to us that we have space between we should have space between words. But in in fact, when children learn to write. Uh, they don't put space. They tend not to put space between words. And for centuries, uh, neither the Greeks uh, nor the Romans uh, had it. Uh, now, in the Semitic systems, you really did need space between words because without vowels, you do need to separate your words. Otherwise, you just get a letter salad that can't be interpreted. And so around, oh, I don't know, five 600 BC, there's some Irish monks who are looking at some Syriac texts, which uh, are a... Uh, it's a it's a branch of Phoenician or proto-Semitic, uh, in which they saw the word spacing and they said this is really cool, uh, and so they started putting space between uh, you know the the, the 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 in the writing that they were using, and that took about a millennium to spread from northwest to southeast, finally to Romania. Uh, during you know about 1500 or so, it's slowly spread over Europe, and that's a a key point in, in the spread of uh, literacy in Europe. Your remark about children and the way they write, uh, people don't speak with spaces between the words, uh, when, when certainly not your native language. So I think one of the biggest challenges for a non-native listener to, to foreign speech is that we don't stop in between words. We just run everything together. But we're so aware of the sing-song and, and syllables and we anticipate what the next syllable is going to be and where the next word is that we can decipher that. But if you'll notice when we're talking, especially when we talk quickly like this, there's no spaces. The syllables just run together. And it's interesting that we can hear those, but we can't read them very effectively. As you say, when you read them with the vowels, you've got a fighting chance. Without the vowels, very difficult. Uh, with the spaces without the vowels, that's another very efficient uh, way to do it. But um our ear is extraordinary when you think about it. Yeah, it is. I mean, I have to admit, I'm a little embarrassed as a as a, as a someone who, in another life, was a neurologist, uh, not to have, have realized this until you just pointed it out to me. It's it's true. It's somehow or other we're able to do it very easily verbally, but we cannot do it visually. And I think if I had to, you know, just off the top of my head, come up with an explanation. I think it's in an, in an evolutionary sense, we've had a lot more practice with speech than we had with writing. Absolutely, right. And that's, um, that's what we're wired to, to access. Uh, well, let's skip ahead. Um, I want to skip ahead to Gutenberg, somebody whose name most of us know, but I knew very little about until I read your book. And I think in my mind, um, what happened in the world, and this is clearly wrong, so I want you to correct the this this perception in my mind well we had scrolls and then suddenly um all of a sudden there were books and that's that was gutenberg but it's more complicated now so give us a feel for what the happened that that gutenberg himself wasn't exactly the biggest printer of all time but he started and was part of something that was big yeah the first people who actually converted from scrolls to to books were the benedictines uh, and we're talking, you know, about uh, the middle of the first millennium, sometime not too long after, uh, actually, well, not too long after the, the fall of Rome, say the fifth or sixth century, uh, 
AD, and the, the, the advantages of the book, or as they called it back then, the codex, were enormous because, you know, you could thumb through pages, you could skip to the end. Uh, it was much easier to peruse a, a book uh, than it was to obviously peruse a scroll. Now, what Gutenberg did was, was very interesting, and I didn't really understand this fully until I dove into the subject. He, he sure didn't invent the printing press. I mean, most people know that. The Chinese had woodblock printing presses. And he didn't even invent movable type. Uh, the Europeans had had steel punch, uh, letter punches, which is movable type for centuries. And the Koreans actually had not only an alphabet, but an alphabet, bronze alphabetic movable type, probably several decades before Gutenberg did. Now, if you think about a page in a book, it's got about 350 words, if there's no drawings on it. And that means it's nearly 2,000 characters. Uh, and uh, if you're going to run a print shop, you're going to need you know, tens of thousands and maybe a hundred or two hundred thousand uh, pieces of type. Now, a letter punch, a piece of handmade movable type, takes about three days to make. So obviously, that's not economically feasible. Gutenberg was a mirror maker. Uh, and as such, he was someone who was skilled at metallurgy. And he figured out a way of using molds and punches moving from harder materials, namely uh um, uh, uh, steel through softer materials, copper, and then finally to an, an alloy that he specially designed, and no one is quite sure of its composition because all of its type has disappeared, but it was probably mostly lead and a fair amount of antimonian tin. Uh, and he devised a, t a molding technique, if you will, that enabled uh, a skilled typecaster, I, I love that word, uh, who could make uh, one piece of type every 30 seconds or so, maybe even every 20 seconds. So it could produce a couple thousand in a week. And so that's what he did. He, he enabled the production, the mass production of movable type and thus made printing economically feasible and made books cheap, which was the key, of course, uh, economic part of it. But he didn't make very many books. Well, he only made, well, yeah, he, he made uh, pamphlets, he made calendars, he printed uh, um, dispensations, and of course he made his famous Bible, and he made a total of something like 180 books. The first couple dozen of them, two or three dozen of them, were on vellum and were thus just as expensive as the old handwritten Benedictine variety. Uh, but, you know, one of the points, if you'll allow me to, to expand a little bit that I, that I make in the book, is that all disruptive change discomforts old elites. Uh, and I've already mentioned the Benedictines. The Benedictines were absolutely apoplectic uh, when Gutenberg uh, in, invented his, his, uh, his uh, mass-produced movable type and made books uh, easy to and, and cheap to make because it basically destroyed their, their rice bowl. Uh, and they sought protectionist legislation. They wanted to get printing, the printing press uh, banned. Uh, and there was a... Um, and the reason uh, that they offered, of course, was... Well, they, they, well, we'll get there in a minute. I'll it read, wasn't because uh, it was hurting them. I'm sure they had a better reason. Well, actually, you know, uh, you know, this is funny. I'll read a quote which, which gets to that subject. It's really quite amazing how honest they were about it. Um, this is a, it comes from a man by the name of Filippo de Strada, who was a Benedictine uh, who was living on the island of Murano in the uh, Venetian archipelago. Uh, and he writes a letter to the Doge saying, you've got to put these printing presses out of business. 
and I'll quote now, they shamelessly print at negligible cost material which may, alas, inflame impressionable youths, while a true writer dies of hunger and a young girl reads Ovid to learn sinfulness. Okay, so they're producing all this awful smut. Writing, indeed, which brings gold for us, so there's the honesty, should be respected and held to be nobler than all goods. Unless she has suffered degradation in the brothel of the printing presses, she is a maiden with a pen, a harlot in print. Well, this is the, this is the, you know, the medieval version of look at all this crap on the internet, uh, and uh, you know, it's destroying and it's destroying investigative journalism <laughs> and, and corrupting our youth. But it is a, uh, but it is at least there is some honesty there. That is unusual. Uh, I'll grant you that. Uh, they did admit that it was partly. Uh, bad for them, which is un unusually honest. So how did printing, though, which, of course, it starts off, it's not it's not so revolutionary. One of the reasons it's not, first, as you point out, is that they're not printing what we would call modern fonts. They're printing in the calligraphy. They're, they're, they found a way to print, to reproduce the calligraphy of, of, of Latin writing in books, which is not the prettiest or easiest thing to do. It took them a while to figure out there was a simpler and easier way to do that. But ultimately, as as the price of recreating and creating printed materials fell, uh, it had dramatic effects on 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 the power structures you talk about, uh, particularly the Catholic Church. Well, yeah. Now, you know, the Benedictines, of course, weren't happy, but the Benedictines were part of a larger organization, and the Church you know, also was very disturbed by this. If you think about what was the power of the church in the medieval period, it really wasn't that they had the power to make people's lives better because, you know, in Hobbes' famous phrase, uh, you know, life was solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Uh, and so it really wasn't that they controlled life on this earth. What the church really got derived its power from was that it controlled the gates to the hereafter. It determined who uh, roasted in hell and who went to uh, to heaven, uh, roasted you know, for eternity, in fact. And that's what people were truly frightened of back then. Uh, and the, you know, the way that they maintained that monopoly was by maintaining a monopoly on the Bibles, not only on the production, but also on the interpretation uh, of the Bibles. Uh, and uh, needless to say, they weren't terribly happy when other people began producing Bibles and interpreting for themselves, most particularly, of course, Martin Luther. So let's jump ahead uh, quite a bit. Uh, we're going to jump to to radio, and you spend a lot of time on radio, and it's a, it's a medium that it's having a bit of a comeback uh, in its own peculiar way in the Internet age. Uh, a lot of people thought it'd be dead. Uh, a lot of people thought it was going to be killed by television. That thought it'd be killed by the internet, uh, and it's it's surviving. But what you explore is how it came to be, which is really hard to understand, understand and imagine for a non-technical person. The idea, what we're doing right now, is you know similar. The idea that you could talk or sing or play music and someone could hear it uh, wasn't possible for a long, long time. At first, it was it was mimicking. Uh, Morse code and telegram and, and very basic signals. But once you got to that level where you could transmit words and music and other things, uh, it had important political implications. So talk about why you make the claim, just rather uh, extraordinary to me, but provocative and interesting, that radio played a major role in the totalitarian regimes of the mid-20th century. 
Well, all right. If you think about um, uh, radio uh, and television as well, I don't talk that much about television because I found radio so much more compelling than the story of radio. It's um, uh, the classic low-access one-way medium. Yes, everybody can own a television or a radio receiver, but only a very few people can own broadcasting uh, stations. Uh, and you know, uh, in Europe, it was really only the governments who ran them. In the United States, it was large corporations. So this is, in, in you know, at least in my paradigm, sort of the ultimate uh, in despotic uh, media, and it's also a very uh, hypnotic one. And I actually put a little graph in the introduction, which is uh, you know plots uh, based on you know political a political science database, the percent of despotic regimes in the world, and there was a very sharp uptick. In 1920, with the advent of commercial radio broadcasting, obviously that's a piece of you know correlative red meat for anybody who <laughs> who wants to criticize statistical correlations. And obviously there were other small you know things that were involved, like the Treaty of Versailles and the Great Depression uh, and the reparations uh, that that were involved uh, in World War One. Uh, but I don't think it's a coincidence uh, that uh, both the uh, the Soviets and particularly the Nazis were able to use it uh, to enormous uh, advantage to control their populations. And even in the United States, you know, Franklin Roosevelt was such a master uh, of the technology and of the technique that you know, he was the only president who got elected uh, to four terms. And he was able to do that. Uh, in very large part through his ability to communicate over this very hypnotic medium. I mean, this was a medium, after all, that was able to convince millions of people in 1938 that uh, the Martians had landed. Correct. So so talk about how the – and that was Orson Welles uh, – talk about how the, uh, how the Nazis used radio and then uh, – and the Soviets. And, of course, there's a, a corollary in that the Soviets – they had widespread radio production, uh, which came to bite them uh, later. But start with how they used it to enhance their power. Well, you know, we'll start in 1932 when the Nazis took power. There weren't a lot of radios uh, in Germany, or for that matter, even a lot of radio stations. Uh, and Paul Joseph Goebbels immediately grasped uh, its its potential. And he ramped up production of a device called the Volksenfänger. Now, you know, you've heard of the Volkswagen, the people's car, but the Volksenfänger, the people's receiver, was much, much more uh, important. It was an inexpensive radio sold initially for about 20 US dollars, and then uh, they were able to cut that in half. And it was very specifically designed with population control uh, in mind. It had no shortwave reception and it had very limited uh, long wave and medium wave reception. So it was designed uh, not to receive foreign broadcasts and only receive the local party uh, broadcasts. And if that wasn't enough, there was a little red placard that came on these devices that said, if you listen to a foreign radio station, you will go to jail. If that wasn't enough, uh, Goebbels appointed tens of thousands of radio wardens who made sure that when uh, uh, the Fuhrer or he were speaking, that people stopped what they were doing, whether they were at home or at work. And these radio wardens were also tasked with listening through walls to see if you were listening to a, radio st a foreign radio station. If you did, you went to jail. They would burst into your home. And even if the radio was off and they saw the dial was pointed to a foreign radio station, you went to jail. Uh, and if you were so silly, 
so stupid as to listen to a foreign broadcast and talk to anybody else about it, you would be hung. Uh, so they understood very, very well uh, the hypnotic power of radio, and I think it, uh, uh, you know, in large part uh, was was responsible for the way they were able to hypnotize uh, their their population. Now, you know, Marx very famously uh, lamented that he didn't want to see uh, the revolution occurring first in Russia because he thought the Russians would foul it up. Uh, and we all know that they did. He was on to something. Uh, yeah, but but the way that the Russians fouled things up, it's it's not a story that people are very well aware of, which was that there really weren't a lot of radios in in the Soviet Union until after Stalin died, because Stalin had wired the country with all, you know tens of millions of loudspeakers uh, that were that were everywhere, and they didn't think they needed radio. But the commissars decided after Stalin was died that was an archaic system, and they should get into the modern era and use radio. And so through the genius of the command economy of central planning, uh, they produced 50 million radios that had high-quality shortwave reception. Uh, and uh, again, very poor long and medium-wave reception. So they were basically designed not to receive local broadcasts, but to receive foreign broadcasts. Now, you know, if you've ever, if you would ever listen to a Soviet radio broadcast 30 or 40 years ago, they were turgid. There was no news there. Uh, you know, it was worse than listening, uh, to a deconstructionist poet. Uh, and the news was very frequently old and, uh, out of date. And you were dealing with a population that, uh, in many respects was very highly educated, was hungry for foreign news and was hungry for history. And they got none of it. Uh, from their local radio station. So everyone from peasants on up to the apparat, the highest apparat, uh, listened to the voices, Voice of America, BBC, uh, Radio Free Europe, and so forth. Uh, and, you know, one of the things that, the, one of the reasons why the Soviets lost power uh, when they did, I'm quite certain, was because they gave away their monopoly on this one-way communications medium. So you write very eloquently about that in the book, you have a lot of examples of how Soviet citizens were keeping uh, abreast of what was going on in the world because they were able to listen to Western broadcasts. And, of course, the other extraordinary thing that was going on at the same time were people like Solzhenitsyn who were using incredibly creative ways of preserving and smuggling writing out of the country and then back into the country or out of the country where people were then – uh, his book would be published in the West, and then it could be read over the BBC or the Voice of America. And uh, carbon paper—they didn't have, you know—they were afraid to. You point out there were, there weren't many copy machines. They're afraid to use copy machines, but they used all kinds of creative ways to copy manuscripts and books um, in really heroic fashion. Yeah, th this was something that I really wasn't prepared for until I researched it. I thought, you know, it was going to be the story about fax machines uh, and copying machines, but the the real the real story, the real way that the uh, the Soviet dissidents uh, uh, worked their their magic, and it was magic, uh, was that they used carbon paper and typewriters. Uh, and if you think about it, uh, you know, you go if if. You, you can produce 10 copies uh, from a single carbon, which they were able to, to do. They got to be very good at this. You don't need very many iterations before you're up into tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of copies of things. And what would happen is that, you know, the, really the, the key event, the, the signal event would be somebody smuggling a manuscript out and it would get broadcast over the voices. People would receive it. They would laboriously transcribe it. The voices uh, made Voice of America... The, 
Right. That's right. A, the term used for the BBC. There's and what's the other one is. Um, well, the BBC, and there's several of them. There was, you know, it was Voice of America, BBC were the two big ones. It was Radio Free Europe, Radio, Radio Free Liberty, Europe. which were which were CIA plants, uh, and and also Deutsche Welle and Vatican Radio were, I guess, the big six. And and so you know, and and it became this this echo chamber, a good echo chamber, uh, that uh, uh, basically destroyed the credibility of the regime, not only abroad but also domestically as well. You know, it reached a point where during the trials of the dissidents that even the, the heads of the, uh, the Western European parties uh, were openly criticizing the, the party in Moscow, something that, you know, wouldn't have even left a wet spot during Stalin's era. But as you pointed out earlier in the conversation, uh, the other factor that, that, that destroys despots, that destroys tyranny is the <clears> – eventually, sometimes at least, there comes a point where the soldiers are unwilling to shoot their own, their own neighbors – but I wonder how much of these these two factors interact, right? If you're a soldier and you can listen to Radio Free Europe, you can listen to the Voice of America, the BBC, or you hear about this this undercurrent of of what's really going on that's being murmured about. I would suspect that that reduces your willingness to to kill your kill your neighbor. Well, sure. Uh, you know, obviously the two inter interact, and it, and it occurs also at the level of the people who are ordering the soldiers to shoot them. If you, you know, what what the newer digital technologies do is they greatly increase that cost. Uh, but you know, there are still places in the world where cost be darned. Uh, I mean, they they will still do that, and that's that's what separates out, say, what happened in Egypt and Tunisia, uh, where the troops where the troops weren't willing to slaughter the populations in in large numbers, and what's happening in Syria, and for that matter, what uh, what happened in Tiananmen. To me, the most fascinating story in the book uh, had to do with the ultimate downfall of of the Soviet regime in August of 1991, uh, when the coup plotters, the people who had basically uh, held uh, Gorbachev incommunicado at Forest in, on, the, on, the, uh, on the Black Sea, uh, they, they did order their troops to, uh, to, uh, to uh, overrun uh, the forces that Yeltsin had at the White House. And they, they could have done that very, very easily. But the troops refused their, basically refused their orders. And the reason why they refused their orders was that about seven months before that, they had uh, very bloodily slaughtered um, uh, a very large number of people at a radio station. I think it was in Vilnius. And Gorbachev was embarrassed by the bad foreign press he got out of that and hung the officers involved out to dry. Uh, and, you know, when they were ordered to do that a second time, they said, Fool me once, shame on me. Uh, you know, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me once, shame on. Fool me twice, shame on me. Uh, and they decided not to uh, to carry out those orders because they knew that they would be doing it in the full glare of the uh, the television cameras. But as you mentioned in the beginning of the book, which uh, it, it it's hard to remember what people thought the world was like in say 1940 or 1950, and you talk about how Orwell saw technology reasonably so as a relentless force for oppression. That the ability to 1984 in 1984 to monitor uh, and every dystopian novel and every dystopian movie is much of it is about how technology is used by the powerful to control the the masses, and yet we came to a turning point incredibly because it didn't have to be this way where it it worked against the powerful, and that's really. I think that's the sub theme of your book, and it's it's such a remarkable historical transformation. 
Yeah, I, I mean, you know, you can't fault, or, fault Orwell uh, for not foreseeing the rise of modern digital two-way communications. I mean, the, 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 the world that he lived in was a world of radio, which was, he understood as a very despotic medium. And he actually said so. I mean, you know, there was a lot of uh, dispute when 1984 was published uh, about what exactly it was about. But Orwell said quite clearly that, you know, uh, that uh, the, uh, you know, and, and when he, in, in, in commentary he wrote afterward that one of the big reasons he wrote it was because he thought that uh, the, the world's dictatorships held all the technological cards. Right. Uh, and uh, because these were very expensive, difficult to use technologies, uh, but now they're available to everyone. And, you know, you can't all fault, fault Orwell for failing to foresee, foresee that. No, I think everybody failed to foresee it. I think it's it, – the trend seemed inexorable. Uh, the fact that it had a, uh, a U-shape or a, or a V-shape, uh, inverted U, is, is quite surprising um, and not, not obvious that it had to be that way. Yeah. Now, you know, we've made a complete volt face. Now, of course, the conventional wisdom is, is, is that uh, it's ordinary people who are slowly taking power using these digital media. Uh, sure, governments can, can use their own uh, technological tools, like the Iranians are, for example, doing very, very effectively, and the Chinese are trying uh, to do. But the playing field's been leveled, and we've not seen a, le- a level playing field like that in human history uh, for a, you know, a communications playing field for a very, very uh, long time. And I think the assumption is that that's only going to increase and improve. And that assumption, unfortunately, uh, may not turn out to be true. I mean, technological advance is a very hard thing to predict. Yeah. Uh, one thing that struck me, I'm going to read a, uh, a short paragraph from the book that, that really is quite um, stunning. <clears throat> Here it is. Quote, None of the inventions discussed in this book from writing onward were designed with mass communication in mind. Their development hinged for the most part on limited commercial government and military uses, and in some cases on intellectual and technological curiosity alone. Gutenberg, after all, printed only 180 Bibles, and the creators of the telegraph had mainly railroad and financial applications in mind. Close quote. And you know, there are all these famous examples like this. The the copying machine was 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 viewed as a curiosity. The even the computer, the idea that it would someday be used by nearly everybody, uh, well, everybody really in some form or another, it was unimaginable. It, do you find it interesting how unimaginable that was, <laughs> and it, how people consistently failed to appreciate what they were on the verge of? Yeah. I, I, again, it gets back to something I said before, which is it's almost impossible to predict technological uh, advance. And the more you know about a, a, a small area, the more prone you are to make that mistake. I mean, for example, if you look at who have been the people who've been routinely wrong about oil supplies, it's been geologists because they know too much about how hard it is to get oil supplies, oil out of the ground. The people who've been routinely right about it have been the social scientists uh, and the economists, most famously, of course, Julian Simon. Uh, you know, and the, the, one of my favorite stories from the book has to do with Marconi, who was a commercial genius, uh, 
but you know, Marconi uh, lived in an era when the, when the radio really wasn't very useful when it was first invented. Yeah. Because if you wanted if you wanted to get a message, you know, around the world, you already had the internet. You know, you had the Victorian internet, the telegraph, uh, and it was much more reliable and much less expensive than than radio was. Radio was really only good for one thing, and that was maritime communications, military, uh, commercial uses, commercial shipping, and insurance companies, and their secrecy is paramount. And so he was not very open at all to the idea of using it as a mass communication tool. It took one of his employees, David Sarnoff, to realize uh, that, that, golly, we can use this for mass communication. It did not occur to anyone else. Uh, you know, it seems obvious to us now. It sure wasn't obvious then. It just that they would make that mistake over and over again, not a mistake, a failure to imagine what could be uh, is you – know, the copying machine is an obvious example, right? You know, for a long, long time, making copies in the modern era, which we mentioned carbon paper, which I think for many of our listeners, they have no idea what it is. It was a, a difficult, unpleasant uh, piece of technology that you put in between uh, a piece of paper and your typewriter – and another piece of paper, if I remember correctly, to make a, a second copy. Um, and the idea that you could do that with a, with what we now call a copying machine, which was therefore ink-free relative to your fingers compared to carbon paper and more reliable and, and more precise, the idea that that wouldn't be really, really useful, that no one could think at least at the beginning that that wouldn't be an incredibly powerful thing is strange to me. Yeah, and you see people making. I'm not the same suggesting, mistake. by the way, I'm not suggesting that I would have foreseen it. I'm just saying that as the human enterprise struggles to see the future, obviously. Well, you know, it, it's it, psychologists have a term for this. It's called the end of history illusion, which is that it is so very difficult to foresee how complex systems, namely technological advance, are going to uh, uh, evolve, that we default back to this, you know, sort of stage zero assumption, which is that there is no change. So, for example, we saw a paper written by a very distinguished economist, Robert Gordon, who said that, you know, we're not going to see, you know, economic growth is going to decrease very rapidly because all the great inventions have already been invented and they're, you know, I, I'm, I'm overstating his case, but he basically says, yeah. He, he basically says that he just doesn't foresee where the next great inventions are going to come from. Well, of course you can't, because if you could foresee them, they'd have already been invented. Yeah, we had an episode with Kevin Kelly where he, he expresses um, uh, skepticism that we're in for a period of, of stagnation. But um, I'm not sure Gordon is, to be fair to Gordon, I'm not sure he's that pessimistic. Uh, but he, I think he is suggesting that that's, that the current uh, revolution has maybe run its course, and it might be a while for the next one. I don't know if he's saying yeah. that there won't be a next one. I'm not, you know, on the other side of it, I don't really see much into, you know, I'm not, I'm not an enthusiast of the singularity. I think the truth is, you know, one of the best assumptions you can always make is that things will uh, uh, continue to uh, progress as they've always progressed, which is at you know two percent productivity growth per year. And I think if you're going to come up with a number that's much higher than that or much lower than that, uh, I think the onus of proof is on you. I'm with you there. Uh, let's uh, turn now to the to the internet, and you have some things to say about the internet's effects on our communication style and skill and thinking. Uh, some have argued that the internet is making us stupid, uh, easily distracted, uh, rewiring our brains. Your reaction? 
Yeah, uh, I mean, this is just one more howl from uh, threatened elites. Uh, you know, and, and you can, you know, with sort of, sort of, sort of things I've been describing in the past. It's a very familiar uh, uh, pattern. Uh, there are a large number of experiments that have been done by clinical psychologists that are almost designed to demonstrate how we can be distracted by this technology. Uh, the classic experiment basically has people, uh, uh, you know, having to follow through information through a hypertext maze. Well, of course, if you have to follow information through a hypertext, hypertext maze, you're going to get distracted and you won't retain it as easily as if you, uh, uh, you know, are presented it in linear fashion. But the funny thing is that that's not real life. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, the world rarely gives us uh, the truth of a complex subject between two cardboard covers or on one web page. Uh, you know, you have to uh, follow a, a very complex, if you're going to do useful work, you're going to have to follow a very complex trail of information uh, over a, some very, very complex uh, webs uh, and tangles. And so I, I don't think there's any question that the Internet has made us more intellectually productive and it certainly hasn't made us stupid. Now, you talk at the very end of the book about, a little bit about Twitter, but I want to ask you about something that came after the book, which is uh, the the Boston bombings uh, that we just recently uh, had happen. And I and at least one other person I've talked to – I haven't talked to many people about it, but I suspect we're not alone uh, – noticed that we did not watch the news uh, for keeping up with what was going on. We followed Twitter. Uh, did you do that? Did you notice that phenomenon? Uh we're not – you and I are not living in Iran. We're not living in Egypt. But um, it's interesting that, that this bizarre, strange 140-character system is having such an impact. Well, I have an admission to make, which is I don't tweet and I don't follow uh, Twitter. Um, I, I, I stay with the with the more ancient medium, just the you know the, the version one, version two web. I use Google News. I use the uh, their their big conventional websites. I do occasionally get the odd hard newspaper. Uh, I certainly don't watch network news. Uh, and uh, you know, I, I I did follow the. You know the, the the whole controversy of of how Reddit, uh, the whole story of how Reddit uh, got things initially wrong. But there's a, you know, it's part of to me a, a part of a larger pattern of the web, which is the web very quickly, very 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 frequently gets things wrong. But it the 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 corrective power of the web is quite remarkable. Uh, yes, a lot of mistakes get made initially, but it's 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 remarkable how blindingly quickly things get corrected. You're, you're referring to the crowdsourcing of, of who the bombers were from right, the photographs right. that fingered three people. Turned out not to be any of them. It's awkward uh, and quite um, unpleasant for those three people, as it turns yeah, out. And, and the convention, yeah, and the conventional news sources, you know, didn't do a much better job either. Initially, there That's were a correct. lot of mistakes made. Uh, let's uh, close talking about you. Uh, you are an interesting person. You are a a physician, I think, by training. You confessed to that earlier in, the, in this conversation. You've written a set of very influential books on investing. Uh, you've written a set of very thoughtful works of economic history. I don't know what you call this book. It's economic history in some dimension, but it's more than that. It's an intellectual history. It's uh, You're quite a polymath. Um, what's next for you, and what's it like to be – 
to dabble deeply. It's what you do. You don't just dabble. You go deeply into a bunch of things, and I suspect the internet's helped you do that, which I think is partly probably why you're uh, a defender of it. But talk about how um, how you choose what to work on and what's what do you think might be next for you. Well, you know, I write right at the beginning of this book how I came to to write it, which which is that it came right out of my last book, which was a splendid exchange, which was a world trade history of world trade, and the story of the repeal of the Corn Law uh, in 1846 was just this to me a blindingly clear demonstration of how access to communications technology uh, affects political structure. The Corn Laws didn't get repealed until the railroad came in and the penny post allowed ordinary people to communicate with each other before only the wealthy could communicate and collaborate with each other. Uh, and that disempowered you know, the powers, the, the forces of, of reform, the people who wanted to get rid of you know, the Corn Laws and a bunch of other uh, very bad things about uh, the English political system in the early part of the 19th century. Um, I tend to look at writing as a process that organizes my reading. It's interesting to just look at book reviews and talk to your friends and you know, direct your reading according to that, but I find it much more satisfying to uh, decide that I'm going to learn uh, a great deal about a given subject that helps me understand the world, and along the way, I might as well write a book about it. Uh, and that's that's sort of how I, I I come to do this. I don't know what's next. I've got five or six ideas. We don't have the time to go through them. I guess if I'll talk about one idea, it's the idea that uh, Philip Tetlock has popularized. That uh, it's really the 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 foxes who get things right. Uh, and not the hedgehogs, and we've wound up with a society that's run, unfortunately, by hedgehogs. Explain that, um, that's yeah. the Isaiah Berlin image. Yeah. Explain yeah. the fox well, and hedgehog metaphor. Yeah, the, the, yeah there, there are a couple ways to interpret it, but the way uh, Berlin interpreted it was that a, a hedgehog is someone who explains everything he sees, he or she sees in the world according to one grand overriding theory and sort of forces the facts sometimes into that, whereas the the hedge the fox is someone who is really never quite willing to come to a definite conclusion about anything and looks for whatever data he or she can find that bears on the subject and often doesn't come to conclusions. And the key thing is that the foxes have better uh, forecasting ability than the the the, uh, the hedgehogs do. But what you see when you look at the, the highest levels government uh, – uh, is you see it's hedgehogs running things. Uh, for example, you see uh, in the Supreme Court now, all nine of them are legal scholars. Not one of them has any real political experience. You know, with the uh, O'Connor and Rehnquist leaving the court, there's nobody on the court anymore who has any real-world political experience. You look at the people who become our national security advisors, and they're basically all political science majors. You know, and by the time they got sucked into the system, uh, they uh, they uh, really had no significant military or diplomatic experience, and yet they wind up moving carrier groups around the world. Yeah, we do. Um, we do have. A, I think of that as more as a as a groupthink problem. You know, you grow up in a particular environment. You know, it comes back to your earlier point about geologists and petroleum experts limited in how well they can foresee what's going to happen in the oil market. It, it's such a strange um, thing to be to be educated in a single discipline and hang out only with those people because you will inevitably adopt most of their views. And I, for some reason, it reminds me of um, you know, the conversation I had with Jonah Lear about his book Imagine, 
where he talks about, I forget which company it is, but they created a website for companies for problem solving where they would say, they'd admit, we can't solve this. We have the best people in the world in this area, but we can't solve it. And we'll pay a large sum of money, meaning a large sum being maybe 50000 or $100,000 to anybody who can solve it who doesn't work for us. And the interesting thing about that isn't that the problems get solved, which they often did, but that the people who solved them weren't the people with the expertise in the area. They were people with seemingly unrelated skills but were able to see things from a different perspective. And that does seem to be a very um, useful thing to exploit that we don't exploit much in policy. Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's very true. I mean, you know, if you look back, for example, getting back to you know the, the Supreme Court, if you look at who were Supreme Court justices uh, fifty or a hundred years ago, they were people who had been president. You know, William Howard Taft, who had run for president, Charles Evans Hughes, people who had been governors and senators, uh, and they had a wide degree of expertise. You know, we don't have those people anymore, and so we get Citizens United. Yeah, it's an interesting challenge of whether um, – well, it goes back to my, my point about Athenian democracy. You know, if we, if we let uh, – you know, I think it's a William F. Buckley joke about uh, he'd rather have the random people out of the Cambridge phone book, Cambridge, Massachusetts phone book, than the faculty of Harvard running, running the country. Uh, I don't know if we really would have a better country if that were true. Uh, there's a temptation, of course – to feel that way, I understand the urge and, and the appeal of it, but uh, we're very uneasy about letting amateurs do things. But sometimes yeah. amateurs do a better job. Yeah, that's that's one of Ted Locke's point. His his threshold is the degree of knowledge about a subject that the average reader of the New York Times has, and beyond that, your forecasting accuracy is flat. <laughs> My guest today has been William yeah. Bernstein. Bill, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. My pleasure. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.